We're looking at Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. We'll be looking from verse 2 on through about verse 14. I'd like to read that for you. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 2. He, that is Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess, <clears throat> was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if we hold on to the courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years and what I did, and saw what I did, sorry. That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they haven't known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end, the confidence we had at first. In the first two chapters of this letter, our author set himself the task of proving that Jesus is superior to angels. Here he goes further to prove Jesus' superiority over Moses. Now, to our minds, that may not seem to be going further. It may seem to be going back. If Jesus is superior to angels, doesn't it follow that he's superior to Moses? But that kind of thinking would not have occurred to our author's first readers, <clears throat> most of whom were Jewish converts to Christianity. Among the rabbis, it was sometimes held that Moses outranked, in a manner of speaking, even the angels. They could conceive of no one greater than Moses. It was Moses who led Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Moses who mediated the covenant between God and the people. Moses who gave Israel the law that defined them as a nation and governed their thinking and their actions. Moses is mentioned more often than any other Old Testament character in the New Testament. He was universally lauded as a great man. Our author doesn't deny it. In fact, he agrees wholeheartedly and yet he boldly claims that Jesus is better. Now, it is probably impossible for us sitting here to feel the shock that a Jewish reader of the first century would have felt at those words and what they implied. You see, if Jesus is better than Moses, then the way of Jesus is better than the way of Moses. And that meant a new covenant, it meant the end of the law, and it meant no more sacrifices. In short, it meant a new identity for the people of God. Look at verse 3. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor, the word is the usual word translated glory, than Moses, just as the builder 
designer builder is the idea, of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Jesus is associated with the builder. Moses is associated with the building. Verse four, for every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Now, that seems like, and it, may, it probably is, a, just a general point our author is making. God is the architect and builder of everything. That, of course, is taken for granted by all the biblical writers. But it's just possible that he's saying something more specific than that and more radical. A literal reading of the text goes like this. For every house is designed, built by someone. But the one designing, building, everything is God. When he writes about the one designing, building everything, it's possible that he still has Jesus in mind. Jesus who's been in mind in verse 1 and verse 2 and prior to that. He's already said that the universe was made through him. He was referring to the Son when he wrote chapter 1, verse 10, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. If he still has the Son in mind, this verse is a bold declaration of his equality with God, the one who built everything that is the Son, Jesus is God. Now, the greatness of Jesus in no way minimizes Moses' contribution to the people of God or his status among them. Our author will not tolerate any word against Moses. He was, verse 5, faithful as a servant in all God's house. That, by the way, is a quotation from uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. Testifying to what would be said in the future. Now, verse 6, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. In each verse, the key words are a noun followed by a preposition. Moses was, here's the noun, a servant, here's the preposition, in God's house. Jesus is, here's the noun, a son, here's the preposition, over God's house. Now, why is he telling them this? There's evidence throughout the text that these Jewish Christians were being pressured to downplay their Christianity and play up their Jewishness. They could avoid criticism, persecution, anger, family troubles, exclusion from social activities and even jobs if they would just tone down the distinctively Christian aspects of the faith. But our author sees that for what it is, a spiritual betrayal that will bring about disastrous consequences. He knows that the Christian life is not just a religion. It's a relationship with the Savior. The eternal life that sustains us flows from him. If we turn from him even a little, we turn from the life we need. The author is desperate for his readers to, verse 6, hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Hold on. Hang on. Hang on for dear life. What does he want us to hold on to? The Greek reads like this. If we hold on to the courage that is the confidence, the boldness, the openness, and the boast of our hope. Our author wants his friends to live the Christian life out loud. He wants them to talk openly about it, boldly. The word that's translated here is courage connotes freedom of speech. He wants them to talk about their hope. He wants them to boast about it, to hang on tight to the boldness and boast of the Christian hope. 
This is the first of five uses of the word hope by our author. Five uses by our author, over 50 in the New Testament. Hope is one of the most powerful forces in life. People without hope live small lives. They turn from the future to the moment, from purpose to distraction. People without hope transform diversions into life goals. They major on minors. They busy themselves sometimes unendingly with making money, with accumulating things, or playing games. Such things become their raison d'etre, their reason for existing. They live shrink-wrapped lives. Our teacher urges us to hold on. That word appears 17 times in the New Testament. It's interesting to note the things that we are to hang on to and the things we're not. For example, we're told, using this word, to hang on to the word of God. Do you know how to do that? It's imperative that you do. We are told to hang on to the teaching that is Here we're told to hold on to hope. Apparently, these things can slip from our grasp. So our author urges us to hang on tight. But we're not to hang on to the things we buy. Those who buy things, this is St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, should live literally as not hanging on to them. And I think the reason's clear. If we hang on to things too tightly, we will not be able to hang on to hope. Or perhaps it's more like this. If we fail to hang on tightly to our hope, we will end up grasping wildly at things. The book Lost in Translation, The Dark Side of Emerging Adulthood, came out 2011 Oxford University Press book. And in it, we read that 91% of young adults are caught up in, and I'll quote, a cycle of shopping, buying, consuming, accumulating, discarding, and more shopping. And guess where they learn that? And how likely are they or any of us to hold on to hope with hands so full of stuff? Many people we know live for the next purchase. That lifestyle will destroy the spiritual life. In fact, it's evidence that the spiritual life is already in peril. If you're living that way, You must change for the sake of your soul. Our author warns us of the danger of losing our grip. And he finds support for that warning in the Old Testament. Look at verse 7, which begins a quote from Psalm 95. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, the word me is not there, where your fathers tested and tried for 40 years and saw what I did, literally saw my works. That's why I was angry with that generation, and I said their hearts are always going astray. 
they haven't known my ways. Our author fears that his readers will, like the people mentioned in Psalm 95, lose their grip. He sees a connection on the one hand between hearing God's voice and holding on to hope, and on the other between hardening one's heart and losing one's hold. A hard heart has no grasp. He knows that the result of hardening one's heart can be disastrous. The fathers hardened their hearts and missed God's purposes. Their bodies, verse 15, fell in the desert, and they never, verse 18, entered the land of promise. Now, I watch people, and it seems to me that many folks are confused about this. They seem to think that they can ignore God's voice without consequences. They think that because Christ died for our sins, they're free to do whatever they choose, even if it means ignoring God. Didn't Christ take the consequences of our sins already? I'm saved, right? But our author will have none of that kind of talk. Later in this letter, he will lash out at that attitude, and he'll do so with unexpected vehemence. He sees in this Old Testament passage And we'll get to that later in this letter. He sees in this Old Testament passage a warning as relevant to his readers, and I would add to us, as it was to the first readers of the psalm. The psalmist warns the people of his generation against hardening their hearts. Don't do it, he says. The author of Hebrews takes up that warning afresh and issues it to his friends. And now I'm taking it up and issuing it to you. Don't harden your hearts. The results are calamitous. In his book, The Barbarian Way, Erwin McManus writes about his son Aaron. He says one day his son, when he was small, came to him and asked him what God's voice sounds like. And McManus says he didn't know how to answer. A few years later, Aaron went off to his first junior high camp. About midweek, McManus went to see him. He found out that Aaron had been in a fight with another one of the kids, and he was all upset, and he wanted to go home. He had already gathered his stuff, and he was shoving it into his dad's car and insisting that they leave. His dad asked him if they could talk before they left, and Aaron agreed. So they found the place in the woods, and they sat down on a couple of rocks, and they talked. And McManus asked him if there was any voice inside him telling him what he should do. And Aaron said, yes. What's the voice telling you, his dad asked, that I should stay and work it out? Can you identify that voice? Aaron said immediately, yes, it's God. McManus said to his son, Aaron, do you realize what just happened? You heard God's voice. He spoke to you from within your soul. Forget everything else that's happened. God spoke to you, and you were able to recognize him. You know what Aaron said? well, I'm still not doing what God said. His dad told him, that's your choice. But he warned him that if he rejected the voice of God and chose to disobey his guidance, his heart would harden, his spiritual ears would become dull, and if he continued on that path, the day would come when he would no longer, could no longer hear God's voice, even if he wanted to. But if he were to treasure God's voice, 
when it came to him through the scriptures, primarily through conscience, and respond with obedience, his heart would be softened and his ears would be able to hear when God whispered into his soul. To his dad's great relief, Aaron chose to stay. This is what McManus writes later. If he had chosen differently, he would have begun the path towards nominal discipleship, discipleship in name only. Perhaps he never would have rejected the faith overtly. He might have even chosen to be a faithful attender at a church and been by everyone else's estimation a good man. But he would no longer be a close Jesus follower. See, every time you hear God's voice, you're at a crossroads. If you turn a deaf ear to him today, you'll be a little deafer tomorrow. And your heart will be a little harder. If you heed God's voice, your spiritual hearing will improve. Your heart will become more and more sensitive to God. Now there's something we need to note here. Being the recipient of God's mercy, seeing on our solid biblical teaching, even seeing his miracles, is no guarantee that your heart will not harden. In the psalm quoted here, the father saw God's work firsthand for 40 years. They saw my works, literally. And yet their hearts went astray, and they missed out on the good things that God had prepared for them. Years ago, I prayed for a man. He was a neighbor to one of the elders of our church where I pastored previously. And my friend, the elder, called me up and said, hey, would you come and pray for my neighbor? He said uh, he's a Catholic guy, but he hasn't gone to church in years, and he just found out that he had cancer, and he's really scared. So I went over to his house, never having met the man, and found him deeply shaken and very eager for someone to pray for him. It wasn't long after that, he went back to the doctor, and he found that his cancer had gone into remission. He was visibly relieved, smiling, laughing, and testifying that God had healed him. I visited him a few more times, and then I didn't see him for a couple of years. But before I came here, I went back and visited him. The last time I saw him, he was 100 miles away from God. His heart was hard. And yet, by his own testimony, he had seen God work in his life. He was worse off after seeing God work in his life than he was before. Receiving God's blessings didn't prevent the Israelites' hearts from going astray. In the quotation that he chose from Psalm 95, our author substitutes two Greek words that are translated in the NIV as rebellion and testing for two place names in the original Psalm, Meribah and Massah, the place of bitterness and the place of testing. Testing rarely comes at a convenient time in our lives or happens in a comfortable place. It's a bitter place where things don't go the way we want them to go, where people don't do the things we want them to do. It's a place of quarreling and anger. Sometimes we know we're being tested. We even say things like, this is trying my patience. But we assume it's a test of patience or cleverness or strength or fortitude. We beg God for strength to endure the test, but it's probably not patience or cleverness or strength or fortitude or spirituality or intelligence that's being tested. It is faith. St. James understood that and wrote, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials, 
That's the same word that our author uses in verse 8, translated in the NIV as testing. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. It's the testing of your faith, not your smarts or your patience or your strength. Your spirituality isn't being tested. Your faith is. Will you trust God? Will you align yourself with him? Today, when you hear his voice, will you do what he says? Will you trust him? Why does God allow our faith to be tested? Doesn't he know what we'll do? Yes, I think he does. But we don't. And we need to. And testing brings its own rewards. When we trust God in the time of testing, we develop the all-important virtue perseverance. Our character becomes more and more settled as God's person. That's something that doesn't happen for the person who obeys this week and disobeys next and obeys the following week and disobeys the next. We become mature and capable and effective in the world. You cannot avoid the testing of faith. What you can do is trust God today. Don't worry about tomorrow. You can trust him today. You can refuse to listen to the self-protective voice that whispers, be careful, don't look like a fool. You don't have to do that to be a Christian. Why should you be different from everyone else? What will people say? The danger is that the test of our faith will become a test of God's patience. We will, verse 11, have an unbelieving heart that turns away from God. The word translated turns away is very strong. It's the verb form of the noun apostasy. We object. We say, I'm not an apostate. I believe in God. But look, every time God speaks to us and we turn away, we are committing a minor act of apostasy. Minor but not inconsequential. The famous apostate atheists who are all over the place these days all started exactly the same way, with an unbelieving heart that turned away from God when he spoke to them. In the time of testing, turning away may seem like the common sense thing to do, while trusting God enough to obey him may seem impossible. But that is sin's deceitfulness, verse 13, at work. Don't forget what's going on here. The real question in the time of testing is always this. Will I trust God? Such times are never just about behaviors. We think they are. I'm being tempted to lose my temper or view pornography or lie to my boss or gossip about my friend. But the core temptation is always to distrust God and turn away from him to something else. The temptation is to seek life on our own terms, apart from God, to go outside his will in order to have something we want because we don't believe God will take care of us. That's what Adam did and what his children have been doing ever since. But because of Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession, that can change with us. 
We can choose to trust God. We can hang on to our hope rather than grasp wildly at things. But we need each other's help. That's why our author says in verse 13, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I've seen that happen over the years again and again and again. We need each other. I need your example and your words to give me courage to trust God when it's difficult. I need you to warn me when you suspect I'm in danger spiritually. I need your help to stay responsive to God's voice in verse 14 to hang on till the end. And you need me. We need each other. That means it would be wise for us to spend time together in settings where our faith is encouraged, like this in worship services and Sunday school and small groups. We should work together on projects and pray together, like at the community prayer meeting this Saturday. We need each other. You're just kidding yourself if you think you don't. You are not that good. Now let me close with a simple question. Taken from verse 7. Today, did you hear his voice? I'm guessing some of you did. And if you did, what are you going to do about it? Let me encourage you. Trust God. Don't turn from him. Turn to him. You can with his help and you will have his help. Do whatever he asks you to do. Let's pray. I thank you, God, that you speak to us, that you're not silent. But I pray for grace at the crossroads. When we hear your voice, perhaps as we already have today. And we have a choice to make. Grant us your grace. Give us your courage. And help us to hang on. I ask for this in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we confess. Amen. Dan's going to come and lead us in a song, so let's stand together. And those of you who will be helping with communion, if you'll come up while we sing.